Good morning. Thanks for coming on this Super Bowl Sunday when the flu is rampant and it's super cold outside. So thanks for coming. My name is Marta Gilliland. I'm a pastor here at Lakeland. And um, I don't get to preach very often. And so, you know, I've been working this out this morning with the mic pack. And I realized that the guys, they don't have any hair. So if I flip off my mic here, then um, forgive me. Um, We're going to be spending some time in Matthew 15 today talking about resiliency and faith in the face of adversity. Um, If you want to go there, you can. Sometimes I like to go to the Bible to where the scripture is going to be. If not, no big deal. We'll have the scriptures on the screen for you. So it's totally up to you whether you want to go there first. Um, And I don't want to assume that everyone knows who I am because I don't preach very often. Part Part of the issue is that the last two years have been really challenging for me and my family. Um, I went into 2016, and I had great plans for it. My second kid was going to graduate. We were going to have an empty nest. I was going to move and have a great, um, you know, dream home and uh, have a sabbatical. It was going to be awesome, and it just wasn't. Um, so two days before, just to let you know, two days before I came back to work for my sabbatical, my husband was diagnosed with gastric and esophageal cancer, stage three. And um, he's doing great. So he's doing great. He's now in a year of remission, and things are great today. But it did, t- yeah, he gets, a, he gets a big applause. It did. It took great courage for someone to go through that, and it's a big deal. And everyone, um, everyone knows someone who's gone through cancer or who has succumbed to cancer. And so it was a big deal in our family. And I told our family when we, when we started on this journey, I said, you know, Gillens, we can do tough things. We can do hard things. And um, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm just going to be honest. I just had to give us all a pep talk. You know, we're going to do this. Um, and we did. But I, what I'm finding now at, at a year out of remission is that what I need more than courage for the moment is resiliency and faith, faithfulness for the everyday, the anxiety that happens all the time. And um, that just doesn't come to you. Courage you can muster up. You can bootstrap it. Uh, You just get through it. And to be quite honest, when you get a diagnosis like that, I mean, what what are you going to do? You do what they tell you to do, right? So um, this got me thinking about the topic of courage and grit and resiliency. And interestingly enough, this is a hot topic on the circus, the circuit now. There's lots of TED Talks. There's lots of books on it. And so I kind of read through them. There's one, um, a book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And there's a, actually a really good TED Talk on this. If you're a teacher, you've probably seen it because it's really geared towards our children how to have grit, because they found in their research that the greatest predictor of success in school, in children, is not IQ. It is grit, stick-to-itness. The interesting thing about that book is that with all the research they've done on um, child and, you know, school success, they've yet to find out how to build grit, (laughs) and kids. They might want to work on that. Um, They might want to have some grit in finding out how to build grit. Um, The other book that I read this year, which is a little more inspiring, is a book by Sheryl Sandberg. She's the CEO of Facebook. She's a leadership guru, especially for women. She wrote a book called Lean In that's really, really helpful. But her book was called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. 
Yeah. It was a great book. It was very inspiring. Um, there were great stories of people who overcome, overcame great obstacles. And what became clear to me is that she could lead one of the you know, biggest, largest corporate um, corporations in America and talk about leadership all day. But when her husband died suddenly of a heart attack, she was completely lost as to how to navigate her world or to navigate it for her children. Because you see, you can't really prep for difficult things, can you? Because if you can, I would have done it. <laughs> I would have really done it, but you just can't. There's nothing that prepares you for the worst case scenario in as much as you think about it. These books are super interesting. They hold good you know, information, but they are not Christian books. They are not um, books that develop your faith. They get us inspired. And the thing about inspiration is that... Um, we can say, yes, we can do this. This is what we're going to apply to our lives. And then literally about 24 hours later, we lose that zip, right? So um, all the gym members today are thinking, yay, all those New Year's resolution, all the gym, you know, we're going to the gym, usually gone by Super Bowl Sunday. So I don't know how y'all are doing on your resolutions, but I don't even do that anymore, so... Interestingly and ironically enough, on the other hand, on the same bestseller list, there's a book, a self-help book called How Not to Give a... I'll get fired if I'll say that word. And it's not even on the, t- on the title. It is basically a book about how not to care about things. And actually, I'm not going to tell you about it because it's a bad word on the front, but it works. There's something about... The other side of the scale that says, that builds up their, you know, we've got one side that says build up adversity, build up resilience. And then we have the other side that says just don't care. How? Just don't care, right? Whatever. Whatever. How many times have we said that? Whatever. Huh. So what to do? What to do? We go backwards and forwards between building resiliency and just not giving a expletive. The reason why that book sells actually doesn't have that great of information, but the reason the book sells is the title itself, because it really gets to our deepest fantasies. Our deepest fantasies of saying, I'm just going to live on a desert island and not care about, I don't want to care in the world, right? Or else why would we be going to these little cat videos on YouTube and dancing babies and all that kind of stuff? Because we go from one end of being really mad about something on social media and the news and the other end of just checking out. Let me see that cat video again. Look at that one. That cat looks like she's getting, you know, someone's breaking into her house while she's in the tub. (laughs) Yeah, there is actually a socio-psychological, I said it, term for this kind of engagement. It's called being a cognitive miser. Have you guys heard this term? Okay, so we're going to talk about being a cognitive miser. And you guys are going to have to stick with me because I'm actually going to read this definition to you. And it actually takes some time to engage in it. So social psychologists, Taylor and Fisk, say that the human brain is limited in its ability to pay attention to and process information. Stay with me. The volume of information we're exposed to on a daily basis far exceeds the brain's ability to process it. I got that. To cope with this imbalance, we become cognitive misers. 
conserving our mental energy by choosing what we will pay attention to. And we use mental shortcuts. And the mental shortcut is like categorizing, putting people in categories or things in categories. They believe this. We believe that. We reserve our cognitive resources by avoiding situations which demand a lot of us and spending time with people who are like us and whose behavior we can easily predict. Anyone do that? Conversely, our interactions with people who are different from us or who violate our expectations are laden with uncertainty and cognitively taxing. We just are over it, right? We do not want to get involved. We do not want, this is too much for us to think about. It's exhausting. We rehearse and we rehearse in our heads what we're going to say, how to get through Christmas dinner with our families. And we're perplexed about the state of the world. And our blood pressure raises about what someone said on Facebook. And then we get anxious about our jobs and our families and our kids. And then our house is breaking down. And it's all just too much. We're tired. Is anyone tired? Raise your hand if you're tired. Uh Uh-huh. But you came. Thanks for coming when you're tired. Here's the tiredness that we feel. We actually feel powerless. We feel powerless to affect any change. We really want to change. We really want to change our lives and change the world, and we want to have that power to affect it. But one minute we're upset, and the next minute we're Whatever. Just whatever. So let's go to Matthew 15. Let's engage in scripture today and give ourselves the, our whole thing. So um, in Ignatian spirituality, what you do is you, you imagine yourself in the scene of the scripture as you read the scripture. So I'm going to ask yourself, I'm going to ask you guys to imagine yourself as one of the characters in this story and, and decide who you feel like. What do you feel like? I'm going to ask you to tell someone next to you what what character you were, okay? Ready? Matthew 15, we're going to start in verse 21. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. And then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Hmm. She came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, please help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. All right, who were you? Tell someone. Tell someone real quick. Which character were you? Did you relate to Jesus? Did you relate to the disciples? Who were like, get her away? Were you the woman? Were you a bystander?
It's hard to engage in something that you disengage, that you can't really picture, right? I'm going to be super honest with you that I did not like these verses, and I, I really didn't want to deal with them. Um, I didn't get it, and part of me got it, and I'm like, hmm, what's happening here? Um, I'm pretty sure it was too cognitively taxing for me when I've read this before. But I engaged in it a little bit more, and I wanted to know what's going on here, especially with the state of the world that we're in today. And let me tell you that if you think it's hard to be a woman now, it was super hard then. Women in biblical times were uh, property. They were nothing more than property. They were not to speak unless they were spoken to. And here we see Jesus basically calling her a dog. Like, I'm not going to give you what you want. You're a dog. No, that's... That's tough, guys. Those are tough words to hear. And I I don't know what to do with that until I engage further, until I read a little more further and I studied a little bit more. Another note, the disciples, some attitude, right? Something else. But how many times have we done that? Like just... Just so tired of it. Whatever. Just give her whatever she wants. If you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, mom, 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 mommy, 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 mom, mom. Just let them watch the TV. (laughs) Who cares by then, right? It's that kind of mentality. So depending on where you are, it'll it'll depend on where you put yourself in the story. If you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're just sick of the whole topics of rhetoric of the world... Or maybe you are someone who's dealing with someone very tragic, something very tragic today. There's something to be learned in this. And always, 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 when you read scripture, you can't pull out just those verses. You've got to take those verses and you've got to read the context around it. So we're going to um, go back to Matthew 15 and we're going to see the context that this was written in because it's super important. It's super important to see what Jesus was trying to do here or else I'm going to say the word. It sounds kind of racist. This is a Canaanite woman, by the way. I don't know if I said that, but she was a Gentile. She was the not just female, but someone from the outside race. And so not only does it sound kind of sexist too, but racist. Those are hard words to hear. Don't disengage because I don't don't want you to sit there and go, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. We're going to talk about this again. Me too, whatever, you know. Don't. Don't disengage. There's a point to be made here, okay? So before this scene with this Canaanite woman, Jesus is on his path to ministry. He's talking to the um, people, and he's preaching. And what he's doing is he's sitting there, and he's talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are getting increasingly annoyed by Jesus because Jesus keeps focusing on something other than the rules, right? And before this part that we're going to read, there's this whole questioning about why isn't Jesus washing his hands? Why isn't he washing his hands? He's going to defile. And this is not a flu thing. This is a real issue for the Pharisees, for him not to follow the rules of their faith. So we're going to pick up here after he he gets into it with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the real religious, you know, people of God. Verse 10, uh, yeah, verse 10, Jesus called to the crowd to come. And here, listen, he said, and try to understand. 
Don't be a cognitive miser. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and said, Hey, do you realize, you know, that you're offended, the Pharisees, by what you just said? You know. Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person leads, guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Okay, well, explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Still focusing on the hand washing, right? Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Yeah, pretty graphic there. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So what's he doing here? What's he doing? In other versions, the part where he says, are you... Do you not understand yet? Don't you understand yet? Other version says, are you so dull? Are you not getting it? Do you not get it? Do you not understand it? And sometimes I've said, yeah, no, I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? But this is the equivalent of what the kids say now. You all need to stay woke. (laughs) Have you all heard that? Get woke, stay woke. And basically it just means got to be paying attention to what's going on around you. Don't get tired of doing that. This is, we hyper-focus on certain things, and then we lose the big picture. And Jesus is saying here, are you so dull? Pay attention. So we get this. We get that Christianity isn't about a bunch of rules, And we get that it's a matter of grace and that we're not Pharisees and, you know, it's all good. It's all good. Whatever. But this conversation happens right before the scene with the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman who comes to him pleading for her daughter. And it's super important because Jesus is making a point. And what we know about the prophets in the Old Testament, is that they would often preach and preach and preach and speak on behalf of God to the people. And what would the people do? Wander off, not pay attention. This is a theme. It's a theme in biblical times. It's a theme now. <laughs> it's like being a parent. Did I just say that? No. Just want, come on back, you know. That's what Jesus is doing. And the prophets would do that. And when they really got tired of saying things, what they would do is they would act it out. There would be a dramatic prophecy instead of talking, talking, talking. Similar to when we parent our kids, instead of talking to them all the time, we would just show them what to do, right? And here, scholars say that Jesus is acting out a dramatic prophecy here with the woman. 
because he's so tired. He's so over telling everybody what to do. And the disciples still don't get it. He's challenging the status quo. He, Jesus, is always siding with those who are far from God. So when he says this kind of thing, it is inconsistent with his character. When he says, the gospel is for, why should I give it to you? You're no more than a dog. It's not his character. What he's doing is he's acting out a dramatic prophecy for the disciples to see. He acts it out for us. He shows us that the woman's faith in him is what matters and what heals. Not our hyper-focused on what, not our focus on what actions we should be taking, but simply a faith in him. Some scholars say this is a test for the woman, that she, her faith is being tested. They want to see, Jesus want to see if she's really genuine about healing her daughter. This is not a test for that woman. This is a test for the disciples as they were watching this unfold. If you notice, he doesn't say anything at first, right? It's kind of wait. It's kind of like waiting to see if someone else is going to say something. Like, okay, something's happening, you know? Is anyone else going to do anything about it? So Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to act this out. This is how you guys act, and this is not right. When religiosity doesn't cut it, Jesus has to show us. He shows us where our pharisaical laws are. He shows us what our expectations are that are not being met when he does something really dramatic like this that's out of his character. The disciples are being tested. They are irritated by this woman. They want to cognitively disengage from having to show compassion on her. They're probably super tired. I totally related to this. But this is also a test for us. We carry all kinds of rules and expectations about what Christianity means and what it ought to do for us. And we don't even know it. A good Christian ought to do this. And a good Christian ought to do that. A good Christian ought to have a really good marriage. And a good Christian should never get divorced. And a good Christian should have really good moral kids and hopefully they'll be on really great sports teams and get the lead in the school play. And we ought to have really good jobs so that we can tithe. And we ought to get that promotion so that we could give more. And we ought to, oughta, shoulda, all these things. And we ought to not get cancer. Something should have happened there, right? All these disappointments and fear in life leads, leads us to expectations that can only be healed by going to Jesus. If there's an audit in your life about the way something should be, whether it's the world or in your personal life, that is going to get challenged. That's going to get challenged. Because he's always challenging us and saying, are, are you so dull? <laughs> Let me say this also, just as an aside, but not to get too off track here. If you visualize yourself as this Canaanite woman, if you visualize yourself in deep need today, Jesus is on your side. He does not see you as a dog or barely worthy of crumbs. 
And there could be a variety of reasons of why you put yourself in that same position today. Maybe you're dealing with great loss, loss of expectations, loss of a dream. Maybe you are part of a minority group, female or from another country, or maybe you don't speak English really well. Or at all. Or maybe you're poor or addicted or sick. If you have come today in faith to seek Jesus, Jesus says to you, your faith will save you. I don't know of any other clear way to say it. He was very clear that the faith is, your faith will save you. Your faith in him. And, and if you're not in that category, maybe you were with the disciples like, just, I'm just irritated, I'm tired, whatever. He's saying, it's not what you expect. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to challenge your expectations. And listen, it's not that there aren't any rules or any authority here. Because Jesus definitely speaks from authority. He's definitely staying within a rabbinical law to say, you know, first I came for the Israelites and then for the Gentiles. There's nothing wrong with what he said. He's saying he hyper-focused on the wrong thing. That's not the focus. The focus is, is it will be for all. And all are welcome here. No matter what your situation is. He says, don't lose sight of me. Don't be discouraged, no matter what your situation is. Don't say whatever, this thing is annoying. Engage. Keep engaging. Keep learning. Keep your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So I've asked my friend Kendra to show us how she did this, to tell us her story. So I'm going to invite her up now. She's going to tell you. I'm Kendra Gensimer, and this is my story. Back in September, I was sitting right where you are. I don't remember the details. I only remember hearing there was a team going down to Houston to help with the floods and knew that I was supposed to go. It's nothing I ever wanted to do, set my heart to do, thought this would be a great thing to do. But at that time, I was sitting in my own flood, flood of sadness that had been one loss after another, over the past several years. I'm divorced. Two years now, but in September, it was still less than two. And the loss I'm talking about wasn't an actual death, but I'd lost my husband, my picture-perfect family, the home I'd raised my family in, the lake life I loved, the illusion of financial security, and the comfort of knowing I wouldn't be alone in old age because I was married. For me, listening to God has been nurtured in a regular rhythm of silence and solitude. It was something I committed more to, and my need to hear his voice intensified in the divorce process, leaving my old life, trusting him for a new one. I was terrified. It felt like I jumped off a cliff and was falling endlessly, overwhelmed by the pain of the past and overwhelmed by the utter unknown ahead It all looked impossible, and my heart felt like it would explode from the pressure. 
God's still small voice spoke to my soul in that. Don't look forward. Don't look back. Look at me one day at a time. Do what I ask you to do today, and eventually I will lead you to the future I have planned for you. I can now see my pattern. I experience hard things like this. Hard thing, terror, paralysis, fueled with the belief that I can't, I'm worthless. Depression sets in, I crawl in bed, eventually tell someone, they tell me good things, and they help me slowly climb out and deal. Over and over in the divorce process and living on my own, I've had the opportunity to practice my response to hard things. Every, op- every problem was a new blank page that brought a tidal wave of terror. Rent or buy a new place to live? I didn't have a full-time job. I hadn't worked in 18 years. Who's going to give me a loan or even let me rent? Find an attorney. I've never done that. I don't know anyone. I don't know how to decide that. Go to court in downtown Kansas City. Face a judge. No way. I can't do it. Pay the bills? But I was told I was a financial idiot. How could I do that? The garage door broke. What do I do? I can't afford $3,000 for a new one. I can't even get it open. The central heater has ice covering it. What do I do? I can't, I can't, I can't. And through all that, my response has evolved. It now looks like this. Hard thing, terror, awareness, breathe, talk to God, tell myself good truths, and move toward the hard thing with him. The prayer on my heart almost all the time is a practice encouraged in our women's contemplative retreats. I've prayed it for years and now see how much it has formed my response when hard things hit. It goes like this. Welcome, 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 Lord. I welcome everything that comes to me in this moment. I give up my desire for approval. I give up my desire for control. I give up my desire for security. I give up my desire to change any person, situation, or condition, and I open myself to the love and presence of God. In September, when I was drowning in pain, God said, go to Houston. So I went. This single gal with no construction skills, who doesn't get paid if she doesn't work, got to spend a week being part of the helpers helping five families begin to rebuild their homes and their lives. I actually measured, cut, and hung drywall. I had enough money to pay my bills. Oh, and that was the same month that the heater got iced over. And I had several other major unexpected expenses, but I had enough to pay for them all. Earlier this month, I wrote on my bathroom mirror something I wanted to remember that I keep forgetting. I read it just this morning. I needed to write it down and read it every day because every day has hard things. It's all I really know at this point in my journey. The only way for me to be okay, i.e. steady in storms, is to be seeking God and resting humbly in at least trying to do what he guides me to do today. I'm Kendra Gensimer, and this is my story.
So, Kendra's like the woman, full of faith on an everyday basis. <clears throat> so the question is for us now. Will we focus on what we ought to be, what we should have been, or some vague expectation of what we thought church and Christianity and following Jesus was going to be like? Or will we step into this grand prophetic drama? And if so, what part will we play? Will we be welcome, welcome Lord Jesus and see what he has for us? One great opportunity for us as we enter into the season of Lent with the church worldwide to practice this season is to step into that drama and practice this resilient faith. As I said before, there's no way to prep for tragedy. Um, but there is a way you can build your faith. And Lent practices help us do that. It's a time to reflect upon our sin and move into a season of repentance that leads us up to living out the story of death, burial, and resurrection on Easter Sunday. They're designed to build our faithfulness so that it'll be there when hard times happen, when adversity strikes. Maybe you need to take a trip as Kendra did. Or maybe it's just a daily, welcome, welcome, Lord Jesus. Or maybe you've said whatever. This is whatever, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. And you need to engage with someone who is entirely different from you. And you might see them as this annoying woman. Maybe that's your challenge today. It, it doesn't really matter what you choose to do. Um, but I would challenge you to choose something that changes your heart. Something that um, really challenges your prior thought to what everything should have been. It'll get challenged one way or another, though. And, you know, give up on that chocolate thing, because Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day this year. So why would you do that, right? There are some expectations and pharisaical laws that we have in our hearts right now, and it gets revealed to us over time. Um, but I'd ask for you to, to engage in some practice that's going to reveal that to you. You'll be amazed at how um, Jesus reveals it pretty quickly. So last year, our Lenten practice was cancer, and we're not doing that again. Um, I won't choose that. I won't choose it for anyone. But I'll choose something different, and I will sit and think about what I need to be challenged on so that I can sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, so Ash Wednesday, plan on that. And now it's a perfect time for us to move into communion because communion is a sign and seal of what God has already done. It's living into that story. If the servers want to come forward, you can get ready for that. It's not meant to be taken lightly. And that's why it's perfectly fine for you to sit in your seat if you don't want to partake. It is something that we ask that you do if you want to partake in this activity. All are welcome at our table. All. But never required. And so it's invitation. It's an invitation, as with your Lent practices, to be sure Christ is the focus. We can begin here and now to take Christ into us as an act of faith in him. 
So we invite you to come to the table. You come down the middle, you tear a piece of bread off, we dip it into the chalice, and then if you like to pray, you can pray up up front and kneel, or you, you can receive prayer in the prayer circle in the back if you'd like to be prayed for. Um, maybe you, you are in a spot where you need healing today. That would be the place to go. And if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, and you're like, I want to have faith. I came because I need Jesus, but I'm actually really clueless about all this Lent talk and why this chick just put on the stool. So if you are like that, and you're like, I want to know more, then Twyla will be back there. We do a discovery milestone that kind of goes through the basics of Christianity, and we'd invite you to come and grow your faith in that way. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and he gave, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant, and my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Live out the story. So for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand? Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. Come forward when you're ready. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or tired and lose heart. Amen. Go in peace.